This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on Monocle 24 on Saturday the 18th of December 2021. Hello, I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. Today, our regular guest, the journalist Vincent McAvaney, joins me to review the day's newspapers. Then, our editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck, will be back with his weekly column. Like tightrope walkers traversing a cable across Niagara Falls, we have somehow made it from January all the way to December. We'll also hear from Andrew Muller. We learned that two politicians in the Amazonian settlement of Borba, having been at loggerheads over the preservation of a local water park, had resolved to settle the matter like men and idiots with a fight in a school gymnasium. Just one of the things that we learned this week. That's all ahead here on Monocle on Saturday on Monocle 24. Up first, a look at what's making the news. Russia says it wants a legally binding guarantee that NATO will give up any military activity in Eastern Europe and Ukraine, part of a wish list of security guarantees it wants to negotiate with the West. The demand contains elements such as an effective Russian veto on future NATO membership for Ukraine that the West has already ruled out. Some Western political analysts suggest Russia was knowingly presenting unrealistic demands which it knew would not be met to provide a diplomatic distraction while maintaining military pressure on Ukraine. A Paris judge approved a 10 million euro settlement with LVMH on Friday that closes a criminal probe into the luxury group's role in a spying case involving the former top boss of France's security services. With the agreement, the world's largest luxury group and owner of the Louis Vuitton and Dior fashion houses avoids a public trial that could have aired details of work undertaken by the former head of the domestic intelligence services. And Britain's top civil servant, Simon Case, has stepped down from leading an investigation into alleged parties last year in government offices in breach of COVID-19 lockdowns after it emerged an event was held in his own office. I'm Georgina Godwin and that's your Monocle 24 News. You couldn't really make it up, could you, Vincent? (laughs) You really couldn't. It's outrageous. Right, welcome to the show. I'm Georgina, as you know, and this is Vincent McAvinney, my very regular guest and good friend. Uh, Vincent, first of all, we're having our own little party here because we've got, for the first time in months, yes. our cardamom buns and our coffees from the cafe. I we am have. very We've excited. missed these, haven't we, on a Saturday? We really have, and they're yeah. absolutely delicious. So Nora and I had the saffron buns because that's traditional in uh, Norway, where she comes from. It's the Lucia, it's the whole Festival of Lights thing, yep. and we always have saffron buns. So we had that. You've got the cardamom, I think. I have got the cardamom, yes. Uh, Lovely. And another one of our colleagues has the cinnamon. It's all very delicious. So big thank you to the Monocle Cafe and particularly to Will Ross, who's the new manager there. Uh, and I can tell you that the cafe is open until six o'clock today. It's on uh, Chilton Street. So if you're shopping on Marlebone High Street or indeed on Oxford Street, kind of equidistant between the two, fantastic place to drop into. Uh, and then it's open over much of the uh, Christmas period, uh, not Christmas Day and not New Year's Day, but uh, you will find it open. And for you might, I came out of the studio the other day and just heard music drifting from the street and there were carolers down the street 
tweet the other day. So apparently they're there quite regularly this week. So if you step in, then you might get some music as well. Absolutely. It feels so Christmassy around Marlebone, doesn't it? It's yeah. just lovely. And of course, we've got Café in Zurich too, also doing huge business. That's at 90 Durfestrasse. So if you fancy a monocle uh, cappuccino or whatever, uh, then uh, do drop in now. Speaking of our own little Christmas party here, of course, there have been many others. And this story about Sir Simon Case, the person who has been tasked with investigating it, having to step down because he had his own party, almost defies belief. Yeah, not not step down from the job, step down from the investigation investigation into Downing Street parties. But yeah, he is the most senior civil servant in the whole country. Uh, he is, you know, the the position that he is is the is the prime minister's essentially right hand man. He runs the shop, uh, and he's very young in the role. He's only actually forty three um, years old, I think. Uh, so you know, he uh, has had quite the trajectory through the civil service. Uh, but this is incredibly embarrassing, and will cast even further doubt on what was going on, the sincerity of those who were imposing rules and how much they were following them. And I've been out in the country, you know, the last two weeks. Yesterday I was in Wales and and there they were imposing new COVID measures, things like shutting down clubs, social distancing and shops and screens and all that again. But the thing I heard time and time again from people, unprompted, I have to say, is that the Prime Minister and them aren't in following the rules. You know, the, the, it is that lots of people saying, you know, I'll still do it because you don't act the same way, but it is still grating people. It is definitely, you know, there is this whole thing in politics of is it punching through? Is it cutting through? This is well and truly cut through. And I think will last quite long in the memory as well. Uh, absolutely. I mean, let me put this to you, and, and uh, I'm just trying to be a devil's advocate here, but here is a man in his office, his staff who are working with him and have worked with him every day and have been coming into the office, so essentially are a work bubble, have an event where they sit at their desks and drink and eat stuff they've brought in. Is that really breaking the rules? I mean, we don't know that that's exactly what happened, but it could be could be played that way. I mean... I will talk about my own experience. So I, like you, was someone who, uh, you know, was class key worker because we're journalists and I was out and about around the country. And a, a few times last year, I happened to have to go into the newsroom around this time. I think I went in twice last December um, into a, a newsroom here in London. And I went in, everyone was spread out on the desks. I edited my package, laid down my voice track. And normally... You have to stay until the program in case something shifts or something happens or or whatever. The second I was done with that edit and it had been cleared by the editor, I was out the door. That was it. And the second everyone else finished the day, it was out the door and all Christmas parties were off. So I'm sorry, there will be, you know... Millions of people around the country who were classed as key workers who were going into work who were out the door like that. Uh, and so it just smacks of a slight hypocrisy in, in Whitehall. And yes, they had a stressful year. Yes, it was hard work. Like everyone, though, everyone had a hard year. And I just don't think there should have been a special exception made. They should have known and they should have done the right thing. Yeah. I mean, at this point, I suspect mostly because of those parties, the government has not said don't mix over Christmas because they know how hypocritical that would sound. But so basically what seems to have happened here is that in the absence of any leadership, Britain's locked itself down. 
Yeah, essentially. And, you know, uh, you uh, last night I was I was finishing, I was doing a report in Cardiff and I, you know, it was it's the Friday before NHS staff, doctors, nurses, they hate the Friday before Christmas because it is always a bit of a blowout. A&Es get full, town centres, you know, any police officers, town centres are a mess. Cardiff is a bit of a party city in the UK deathly quiet um and you know i think it's something you know ever nothing is really that busy anymore i was meant to see friends today with plans we had to we decided early in the week that we were cancelling that the risk was too high when we're traveling home i think you know it was very awkward this week at the press conference because the prime minister felt uh, well bound in two ways one because of the behavior that he perhaps has engaged in and permitted others to engage in in downing street last year that's come to light but also the way that his backbenchers are so angry at him he wouldn't tell people to you know not go out but chris witty who is a very mild-mannered man who's the chief scientific officer here in the uk I think for him, it was essentially an outburst. He was telling people to scale down their plans to only prioritise the most important, um, you know, the, the most important uh, connections to you to seeing them, prioritise seeing family at Christmas. Uh, I think that's as far as he would go as, you know, defying the prime minister in public. And I think he did that. And I think the public picked up on it. Yeah. And he was, of course, vilified by the Tory press. Too. Yes, he was. Yeah. Um, I just want to pick up on a comment that Matthew... And I've got to say, and I don't think, I think that could back fire on them as well because you know chris witty when he's not there in government leading the response he's in hospitals working on what he spent last christmas in hospital wards wards working as a doctor mm. and i think if they really go at him they were trying to say oh he's making the policy now i'm pretty sure he will spend this christmas working in hospitals yeah. as well because he's just that kind of man he mm. you know he doesn't have a family of his own he's incredibly dedicated to the job and i think that they should they need to be very careful with that on the public. So. Yeah, absolutely. I want to pick up on something that um, Matthew Paris says in The Times. I just think he is the, the, such an insightful man and, and a beautiful writer. He says here, um, he's talking obviously a, 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 about this, the, 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 the columnist headed Tories have swallowed the poison of populism, pandering to UKIP has delivered a temporary cheap thrill to the Conservative Party, but it's now paying a heavy price. But there's just one line here that really jumps out at me and it says, uh, he says, no, this doesn't. This is not going to be another column about Boris Johnson. Then he says, he's finished and we can chin stroke about that. Uh, we, can chin, we can chin stroke about the when, but not the weather. He'll be gone before too long. Do you think that's the case? I think it... I admit, you know, I don't like to go into the political prediction business, but I think something has definitely changed. Something has snapped, and I think the public have now perhaps seen through him. Um, you know, I think, let's say, the Prime Minister has, uh, at best, a socially distanced relationship with the truth, mm -hmm. as has been shown time again. Apart from the Mayor of London, he has been sacked or removed from every job he has, often because of lying. Mm. Um, and I think the public now have seen through the bluster and the bumble and want competency. Um, and the question, though, is what is the alternative and who is the alternative? I, I think if he does go, I, my money is now very much on Liz Trust to succeed him which would be quite a remarkable reversal of fortune for someone who was sort of demoted a bit under May, but has now staged a bit of a comeback. But I think that, the, you know, the, the main runners and riders there will be Liz Truss, Rishi Sunak and Pretty Patel. Um, and, I, you know, Liz Truss is doing everything she can to 
you know, channel the Iron Lady at the moment. There was that photograph of her in the tank mm. recently. There was a picture that came out this week where she basically looked like she was, to be honest, the Queen about to deliver a Christmas <laughs> message. Uh, and I think she is now playing a long leadership campaign. And do you not think that the public would prefer Rishi Sunak because everybody presumes that he just gave them all free You've money? You've forgotten the key part there, Georgina. That it's he's not Asian. The well, the, um, that, that's what that's coming to. I mean, the, the bat squeak who, of who racism gets, who has gets been. To, who gets to pick? It's about it's the, the 80,000 or yeah. so members of the Conservative Party in this country, a country of 65 million, and it falls to 80,000 or so mm. members. Mm. And I still, when you... And that racist gene is very much within that demographic, I'm afraid. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. How extraordinary that we should end up in this position. And yet, and such a short time ago, it looked like it might be Jeremy Hunt. I mean, yeah, you know, he he was a health secretary, did that job for five years. And I wonder how different life would have been if he had actually been the, the leader and the prime minister in the past couple of years. But um, he wasn't, so we won't know about that. But I mean, it will, it is remarkable. You know, the Tories are very good at getting rid of a leader and I think that this week we have started to see you know the allies of, of Theresa May popping up and and enjoying this moment because of what Boris Johnson and his allies the torment that he inflicted on her um two you know two years ago during those Brexit years but it is remarkable that in you know we are you know next year it'll be we're about 11 and a half years into this conservative government uh, and they're possibly about to burn through their third leader extraordinary. Look, let's hear from our own leader now. It's Monocle's editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck, with his weekend column. Like tightrope walkers traversing a cable across Niagara Falls, we have somehow made it from January all the way to December. Sure, there were some moments along the way when the squalls and spray threatened our passage, but here we are just a couple of steps from completing the year. But, and I do apologise for this, there's one small thing that I need to mention. It looks like we're going to have to catch our breath and make the same journey back along the rope again. This past year has been, well, interesting. When it began, many of us were confident that the pandemic would soon be in the rearview mirror as vaccinations stopped infections running amok and protected hospital capacity. And indeed, here in the UK, we had Freedom Day this summer when the coronavirus controls were packed away and, said the government, they would not be needed again. But now we are being stalked by Omicron. And while nobody seems to be able to give a very convincing assessment to what its wildfire spread will really mean, it's rattling people. And who knows what will be done to try and control it. Uncertainty makes it difficult to plan anything. And if you're not careful, it can become paralyzing, deterring you from scheduling a dinner or a trip to the cinema. I used to plan holidays months in advance and have them in my diary as things to look forward to. No more. Unchecked, uncertainty turns you into diary day traders, snapping up and quickly dropping opportunities just hours out. It's a habit that leaves the hospitality industry on tenterhooks. But back to the tightrope, because in the end, we have little option but to put one foot in front of the other and see what happens. Standing still is not a plan. That's been the vibe at Monocle over the past year, more 
take all the chances that come your way to keep moving see people when you can know when to ignore vague data that's presented as though it's irrefutable fact is why we were able to host a very memorable quality of life conference in athens this summer run a pop-up radio station in milan during the furniture fair and host a christmas party in paris just a couple of weeks ago today the french would bar my way it's why the magazine still lands with a satisfying thud on subscribers' doormats. How we have been able to report from so many important events and places. Afghanistan, Libya, Greenland. Care, matched with ambition, have seen us through. As have you, our readers and listeners. Your support, your emails across the year, and your purchasing of magazines and subscriptions have allowed us to flourish in 2021 and actually remain confident about what lies ahead. So, a huge thank you from all at Monocle. And a personal thank you is in order too. There's something about this Saturday column the way it finds people more relaxed perhaps at the weekend has helped it create a connection with all sorts of nice folk. Across this year, I've told you pretty much everything that's come my way. All the ups and downs of navigating a pandemic, being an editor, running a team of family loss and of joy. And every week have come back the emails with your stories, reflections and occasionally refutations. It's been an amazing experience. But one word of advice as we step out onto the tightrope again. Try to ignore the breeze that's making you feel a little wobbly at times. Okay, ready? Here we go. Thank you very much there to Andrew Tuck. And certainly there does seem to be the winds of change sweeping across everywhere, not only here in the UK, but when we look at the US, because, of course, they're only, uh, the, the next election is only coming up in 2024, but already there is much muttering about it. On the Republican side, will Donald Trump stand again? Will he still be the kingmaker? Will the Republicans dump him? Will he have this huge power over the party still by that time? But also Biden... Is he going to go for another term? He would be really ancient by then. I mean, I'm being ageist, but but honestly. Yeah, I mean, we've got the midterms coming up in 2022, but already eyes are drifting to the election in 2024 because there's so much on the line. As you say, Donald Trump looks as if he is running again, if his legal troubles don't, uh, you know, force him out of the race between now and then, which are, you know, they are pretty grave and they are still building behind the scenes. But there is then a bit of soul searching in the Democratic Party to see and the New York Times got a good piece about this this morning, uh, that they have no plan B, really, if Biden doesn't run in 2024. Biden would be 82 the month that he would be on the ballot. Um, I think it's fair to say I was in the US last year during the election and Biden had, you know, for someone of his age then, you know, 77, 78, he had a lot of energy. He was, you know, they were protecting him from the virus because we didn't have the the you know the shots at the time but he you know he looked energetic but i've got you know i think that he has had a lot of unfair criticism over the past year but you you can't help but notice when you as i often have to do as you have to do as journalists when you really do watch a long speech or a long event with him or something like that on a on a feed um his energy is pretty low, um, but he has achieved a lot. You know, the, what he has done in his first year is quite remarkable. The shots, the vaccination programme for those willing to take it, the Build Back Better bill. But is he really 
going to run, you know, for election again at 82 when he would be in office until 86. Mm. It would be, you know, quite something. And of course, his deputy's popularity has just tanked. Yeah, Kamala Harris's popularity is, is, is pretty low and there has been... Quite a bit of, it seems, infighting and briefing against her in the White House itself. Uh, Accusations that she um, is not running her office properly, that she's not properly, you know, reading into things and briefing things. There's a bit of staff changing going on at the moment in her office. Uh, But part of it is as well because the vice president is an incredibly difficult role because you're a sec, you know, you're a heartbeat away from power, but you're still, you know, you are, you can't eclipse, you, you know, you're always best supporting actress. So you can never really stand out and be bold. You're not meant to eclipse the president. But you're also the one that has to soak up all of the most difficult issues. You know, she's dealing with things like, uh, you know, the southern border. She's been tasked with that. But this is traditionally the kind of stuff that vice presidents get get tasked with. Um, and she really needs to turn it around if she wants to make a serious fight if, if Joe Biden doesn't run in 2024. Because you're looking around, you've got Names like Pete Buttigieg, who is the uh, transport secretary at the moment in the cabinet. He's had a meteoric rise from small city mayor to, you know, to a a possible contender for presidency. He would only be about 40, though. And let's point out the obvious. He, uh, you know, he is married to a man. They have recently uh, adopted twins. Um, and that has caused, you know, not even veiled homophobia on Fox News, but outright homophobia and daily questions about him having taken paternity leave. You know, this is a country where paternity leave, even maternity leave, is pretty alien. Uh, but I think he, you know, he only took, I think, two weeks because one of the sons became gravely ill in hospital, uh, and the Republican press was, you know, mocking him and, and all sorts on on that front. So there are issues if, if he would run, sadly. Um, but then you're looking around at could Elizabeth. Warren, the senator, go? Could Amy Klobuchar, the senator, go? But there is one name that haunts all of this, is that could it be Hillary's turn again? Could she run again? Extraordinary. I mean, she was, she, it appears, was so hated last last time she ran. And I've never really got to the bottom of that. Do you understand? So hated, but still won over three million more votes in uh, you know than Donald Trump did. Yeah. You know on their in you know increasingly insane math, which is creating minority rule through the electoral college. Yes, um, yes she lost, but she you know she did win three million mm. more votes. And you know Joe Biden, you know I think he won in the end. I think seven and a half million more. So it shows that more did turn out for him, and there were you know Republicans who turned away from Trump. But I mean. The question around her last time was also a question of age. I think looking at the math, she would, and I say only, but after Joe Biden, she would be about 76 if she were to get elected in the next general election. And she's still pretty, you know, sprightly. She's not showing any signs of Mm. slowing down. And I think it was really curious. In the past week, she's released an episode of the, or she's taken part in Masterclass, which is that uh, quite fancy online thing where you can learn something from, you know, the likes of, uh, you know, it was like Shonda Rhimes, the the great TV producer, will teach you TV show writing, or, or Gordon Ramsay will teach you cooking. It's it's quite an intense course that you can do all these things. She's done a masterclass uh, teaching people about you know uh, about public life and and also just kind of being a woman and all these kind of things in in powers of position and what she's learned and stuff. But but one of the things that she did that was really interesting was one of the episodes was that she took you through the speech that she would have made had she won in twenty sixteen. 
And, you know, yet some people might be a bit sceptical because... But there was a point where she actually welled up in the speech talking about it, where she talks about wanting to go back and time to in the speech that she would have made, going back in time to tell her mother who had passed... And her mother had was raised in in very difficult circumstances. It was it was abusive. It was all all sorts, and, and was quite poor, and and got you know worked as a cleaner and and all this kind of stuff, and and got her own edu- education. Um, it, but she you know she said I I only wish that I could travel in time and tell my mother who was you know raised in difficulty uh, that you know I a woman have managed to do this in in two generations. And I just thought, oh, I wonder if it's still, I wonder if it's still playing in your mind that maybe you should go again. Mm-hmm. Um, but we'll see. As you say, she does polarize. But I think even between now and 2016, I think conversations around questioning women's capability and power, but also things about you know calling out sexism. I think things have you know changed a bit since then. Things like the Times Up movement have changed how the conversation might be about Hillary. What's often been the problem though that she's had is that whenever she is uh, not running for something, she's incredibly popular. She was incredibly popular as a, a Secretary of State. Mm. I don't think anyone doubted how hard she worked there. She was incredibly popular when she was a senator. But um, when she's actually running for stuff, that's when her popularity turns to wane. It's extraordinary, isn't it? And I think uh, quite a lot uh, to do with sexism. Yes. But I mean, imagine that rematch if she did go, you know, Trump versus Hillary round two would be quite remarkable. Quite, quite remarkable. Um, So let's hear now from Andrew Muller, because uh, he, of course, has his usual wry take on what the past seven days have taught us. We learned this week something of how Ebenezer Scrooge felt when visited in the night by a posse of sanctimonious spectres. Yep, good work. What we might think of as the ghost of Christmas present, i.e. a manifestation of the remorseless and invasive unwillingness of modern capitalism to leave us alone for five goddamn minutes, appeared on the tube here in London, having assumed the form of popular warbler Mariah Carey. Hi darlings, it's Mariah. Make my wish come true and please stand behind the yellow line at all times. Proceed with caution and don't forget to ask Alexa to play All I Want for Christmas on Amazon. We did not learn, but would like to, how one goes about explaining to Mariah Carey what an underground commuter train even is. Meanwhile, we learned that the ghost of Christmas future, at least if you're taking as read an accelerating descent into some technologically accelerated Hobbesian dystopia, had descended upon a hockey arena in Sioux Falls, South Dakota where, we learned, adult citizens of Earth's most prosperous nation had actually arrived at the conclusion that the spectacle of public school teachers scrabbling for dollar bills with which to buy classroom supplies on a mat in the middle of an ice rink amounts to wholesome yuletide and or pre-match entertainment. We also learned while writing this up that it is quite difficult to convey the full grotesque indignity of all that without the video, but for what it may be worth, it sounded like this. (laughs) 
We later learned that following a global response which may be summarised by a well-known phrase or saying rhyming with more ducks bake, organisers and sponsors had apologised and reached deeper into their pockets by way of atonement. But we also learned that while South Dakota's teachers consistently rank among the worst paid in the United States, it is far from uncommon for them to spend what little they do get on buying basic equipment the state will not. So we learned that South Dakota is, if it's lucky, the second best Dakota. And scratching about for some semi-plausible representation of the ghost of Christmas past to pad out a conceit which, if we're honest, feels like it's getting away from us, we learned from Brazil of something which will about do if we proceed from the assumption, and why not, that Christmas, despite the promotional flannel, re-season of goodwill, etc., is traditionally much more often a time at which people confined at close quarters give vent to long-suppressed resentments. Does, does that get us there? Let's have the general muttered agreement clip. Anyway, we learned that two politicians in the Amazonian settlement of Borba, the mayor, Simao Peixoto, and a former councillor, Erno de Silva, having been at loggerheads over the preservation of a local water park, had resolved to settle the matter like men and idiots with a fight in a school gymnasium. Again, we regret that we can only furnish the soundtrack, such are the limitations of this audio medium. We learned, reviewing the footage, that the pugilistic endeavours of both men and idiots were longer on enthusiasm than technique, but after an amount of undignified flailing, Mayor Peixoto seemed to have incurred a pretty comprehensive thrashing. He was, however, named the winner, prompting an amount of disquiet, as will now be articulated in an appropriately Brazilian accent by Monocle 24's dubious adjudications desk chief, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Boo! Fix! Disgrace! We will obviously keep you posted on any news of a rematch, unless, of course, we have simply lost interest in this story by then. And sticking with the theme of stories in which we have simply lost interest, we learned of the latest resurrection, that's more of an Easter thing perhaps, but stick with us, of the War on Christmas. This, you may be aware, is the inextinguishable fantasy, dementedly nurtured by hard-of-thinking conservative types, that a conspiracy of liberal elitist bogey folk is labouring to abolish Christmas, doubtless before forcing us all into gay marriages or whatever. While the War on Christmas is usually largely an American mania waged by cable news bloviators declaring that they're going to say Merry Christmas instead of Happy Holidays like literally anybody cares, we learned this week that the War on Christmas had jumped the Atlantic. Hooray. What happened, we learned, was that the European Commission had bunged round a handbook on inclusive communication generally, which contained a few gentle reminders not to make assumptions about diverse groups of people, including the assumption that everyone celebrates Christmas. 
This manifestly harmless suggestion, we learned, was seized gleefully upon by a conservative newspaper in Italy, whose interpretation of it was somewhat less nuanced, and subsequently adopted by the usual cohort of headbangers and grandstanders who affect vapours at this sort of stuff. Even the Pope, cornered for a quote, witted about secularism and dictatorships, at which the EC backtracked, the dingbats declared victory, and the whole thing was just too stupid for words. Except, we learned, the words of David Lundy, head of communications for the left in the European Parliament, who can play us out. On the Commission uh, language guidelines, it's been uh, pretty interesting to see the centre and far right work itself up into hysterics on this. It's a clear example of fake news, of course, which makes it all the more disappointing that the Commission has um, caved in to these uh, right-wing uh, snowflakes who can't seem to bring themselves to accept basic rules around politeness and decency in a public service institution that's paid for by a very diverse population. Uh, of taxpaying working people that they're supposed to represent. Um, the document seemed quite fair and balanced. It's basically about not being uh, an arsehole in the workplace. Uh, there's nothing about Christmas being cancelled. That's completely invented. Uh, so we'll be participating in the debate and it seems like those right-wing forces need a nice Merry Christmas break and a relaxing winter holiday and I hope their delicate little hearts are not too offended by me saying that. Let's have some thunderous applause. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Miller. Pretty good workplace ethos, I would say. Yeah. <laughs> now, have you been watching Succession? Yes, I have. I mean, just extraordinary. The final episode was, I think, up the top 10 TV episodes I've ever seen. Yeah. It just felt Shakespearean watching oh, those it, three was, characters was Leah, band together. Oh, yeah. Brian completely. Cox. Amazing. But also, I think I've, I've always been a bit like, has, is, um, not Macaulay, but the other, Col Kieran Culkin's character, yeah. just been a little bit written maybe or from one note where it just being an arse whereas that really seeing behind the facade of all that bluster in, through that episode I thought he really did fantastic and oh like yeah it, it was great but I don't want to give anyone spoilers for anyone who hasn't seen it but no. uh, yeah what an episode yeah. there was a great tweet though I, I saw this morning going who's the warmsgants of British politics <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, but speaking of uh, soaps, let's mm -hmm. go to Russia. It's not really a soap. Would you call it a soap opera? Uh, I think this was a soap opera. But, but um, Succession, would you call oh, that succession. a soap opera? Oh, Succession. No, I wouldn't, I wouldn't call it a soap opera. I mean, it, a serial you know, drama. Perhaps a biopic of the Murdochs. But, you know, <laughs> no, not really. But anyway, let's talk about the soap opera because this is something that happened in Russia. Yeah, this is really interesting. It's I've not heard of this before, but it, it does show, you know, as as Russia and the West, uh, you know, still fracas uh, on the borders of Ukraine. This is a a museum that's opening with a special performance uh, every day through March the twenty second. It's at the GS two Museum in Moscow, uh, and it's being described as a I think a living sculpture by the artist and director Ragnar Kajatunstan, who is Icelandic. So I've definitely mispronounced that surname. <laughs> but what they're doing is reenacting, and they've built all these TV show sets. They're reenacting a soap opera 
that aired in Russia, and it's been forgotten in the US. It was called Santa Barbara. Santa Barbara, obviously, a very plush part of California. Uh, I think I've been there four years ago. It was very nice. Um, and this was, I think it's a bit like, you know, Neighbours in the UK becoming an escape in the 80s and 90s, uh, and a bit like how Universal Friends became around the world. Apparently, Santa Barbara became a real cultural touchstone in Russia because it aired uh, from the fall of the Soviet Union for, for a decade. It was dubbed um, from 1992 to 2000. 2002. And the piece here in New York Times describes it as a Russian commentator saying, you know, this was our introduction into Western life and what their lives were like. It's where we saw that they were the same as us, had the same problems, the same issues. Obviously, they lived in these much nicer places and they were wealthy and they flew in private helicopters. But we could see the link across the former Iron Curtain to, to the West. And I think it did a lot to teach them about how things in the West operated, even though it was a soap opera. But the the word Santa Barbara is now um, being used for a chaotic situation. It's just a chaotic situation in Russia. So the descriptions here, someone was saying a foreign foreign affairs analyst uh, was surprised when he saw... um, Settle, uh, the, the Ukraine and Russia situation being described as a, a Santa Barbara. And so he investigated it and found out it was this, this soap opera that has become a cultural touchstone in Russia. Oh, the streets just go quiet when it was on. So these performances are going on uh, for the next couple of months of episodes. And, uh, you know, apparently it's huge, drawing huge crowds of people watching this because it's, you know, I guess it's a bit like the Friends reunion was for, for us here of, of seeing these things played out once again. But it does show a, a window into a time of possibility that, you know, that decade when, you know, Russia left the USSR, you know, behind and and before kind of, you know, Putin really took grips um, of of what could have been if they had perhaps kept going down that path. Absolutely. And now, of course, it has all gone a bit Santa Barbara. (laughs) Indeed. (laughs) Uh, Vincent, thank you so much for coming. This is, in fact, our last monocle on Saturday for this year. Um, We'll be back in a couple of weeks' time, though, and I'm quite sure that once again you'll be a regular guest. Hopefully. I did see a scary meme last night that 2022 is 2020 part two when you write it out or say it out. So let's hope we have a better year in 2020. Two, uh, <laughs> and it's not 2022. Yeah, or the other way around. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, thank you so much. Also, thank you to the Monocle Cafe. Great coffee, even nicer buns, uh, and the cafe's open until six o'clock today. Why don't you wander down to Marlborough because it really does feel very festive here. That's all for this edition of Monocle on Saturday. Thanks to our studio engineer Nora Hull. Uh, I'm Georgina Godwin, and uh, this program will return in 2022.